Welcome into the 20th and Blake podcast here on the Mile High Sports Podcast Network. I am your host, Drew Kreisman. As always, excited to be talking Colorado Rockies baseball with you on today's show. Had a few different topics. I was bumping around in the old noggin, decided what I would do. A bit of news and notes today. There's just enough, a handful of little things that have happened that I feel like commenting on rather than diving into one big topic. I think our next one is going to be the bullpen. Um, But before we get to that, I figured today, why don't I go ahead and just run through a few things that have happened in the last couple of days, give you my thoughts on those so we can get a nice little baseline moving forward, right? Let's begin with the Colorado Rockies and arbitration. As I am recording this, Colorado Rockies have reached agreements to avoid arbitration with all but one of the players who is eligible to do so. Now, this is a bit strange because that one player is Kyle Freeland. And he's somebody who has had a phenomenal relationship with the team ever since arriving. Obviously, most of you know the story at this point, but Kyle is a a Denver native who actually grew up a fan of the Colorado Rockies, has made it clear over and over again that he loves being here, that he wants to be here. Guy like bawled his eyes out when he was drafted by the Rockies because that's where he wanted to go. The Rockies moved things around his rookie year to make sure that he could make his Major League debut on opening day at Coors Field against the Dodgers. And the guy was fantastic. Obviously, he was their best pitcher in their most important season as of late. That was 2018, the second most successful season in their franchise history, and he was clearly their ace. He should have been second in Cy Young voting that year. He ended up coming in fourth and, you know, had a really bad year after that, but has since pretty much bounced back. And so this is definitely an interesting thing. Uh, You know, sometimes it just happens that when you come up upon these arbitration times, you know, the player puts in their number, the team puts in their number. If they're far enough apart, may go to arbitration. They may just settle in the middle, which would be about $7 million for Freeland, which is about what he's been worth on average. Now, obviously, when he's been at his best, he's been worth much, much more than that. But you know, in 2019, he, he was obviously not worth anywhere close to that. So it seems like a fair number, but it's also one of these things where I'm kind of, I won't say I'm surprised that the Rockies haven't worked out an extension yet with Freeland, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's one of the next things on the list as Bill Schmidt is trying to sort of concretely, you know, create this core for the team for the future and decide, yeah, these are the guys we're going to build around. I would think Freeland would be one of those guys with the way he pitches at Coors Field. You know, the fact that he's still in his 20s, he's 28 years old. He's he's getting, he's a little bit older than I, I'd remembered. I, I, I thought he had just turned 28, but in fact, he's about to turn 29 uh, in May. But Still, I know how the time flies, right? It wasn't Kyle Freeland just a baby boy? Like, now he's 29 years old, he's about to be. But yeah, so I'm not. I look, I, I don't think this is going to go to an ugly arbitration case. I don't think this is going to poison the franchise's relationship with Freeland. But I did find it strange, right? Now, probably the other reason why he's the one left out is that all of these other arbitration deals were basically, you know, they're low dollar numbers that you figure, uh, it's you know for it's kind of funny to say like paying a guy um you know $760,000 to avoid arbitration is is nothing to these owners but it is that's nothing that's just the cost of running a franchise at all right Garrett Hampson getting a million bucks it's like good he's earned that that's probably huge money for him you know, as a minor league guy who did I don't think he had a huge signing bonus or anything like that 
you know, but th- this number for Freeland being a bit more, I can understand why maybe there's a little bit longer of a process going on there. Um, one thing that actually, su- I-, I won't say surprised me again, because I didn't think that they would non-tender or cut Ramal Tapia, but I guess I was worried that they might. And And again, it has less to do with the fact that, you know, I think that they think he has no value. But remember, they parted ways with David Dahl over about $3 million. And it was the correct decision in hindsight, despite the fact that they got absolutely blasted for it. You know, in this similar process, the Rockies basically decided, nah, we're not going to pay you $3 million, even though you could exceed that or, you know, not as it turned out. You know, they're worried about the injuries and all of that. And so, so they decided not to do that, right? And with the acquisition of Chris Bryant... The Rockies do have a little bit of a crowded outfield. Now, I've argued on this show and others and in, in writing that I think you need all those guys. I think, and I'm going to get to this part at the end too with the 28-man roster and everything, I, I think that you need, or at least you you have use for, Garrett Hampson, Connor Joe, Sam Hilliard, and Rymal Tapia. I also don't think any of those guys at this particular stage of their career is a great trade value. So I hear some people saying, well, just trade Tapia for... A reliever. It's like you're not getting, you're just not, I, I know I've said this before on the show, you're not getting a closer or a setup man for Ryan Maltapia. At that point, why not just go with what you've got in the bullpen and have Tapia, who you know can do certain things for your ball club? I'm hoping that's the realization that the Rockies have come to. I still think, obviously, in a you know best case scenario, you've probably got Sam Hilliard and Connor Joe alongside Chris Bryant in your outfield. But there's a place for these guys on your team. And the fact that the Rockies were willing to pay the $3 million to keep Tapia around to see what he can do, to see if he continued to be a contact threat for him. Maybe he will hit the ball in the air a little bit more this year, which would all of a sudden make him a very valuable player instead of just a guy who you need to be in just the right situation to succeed, right? Make him maybe an actual league average hitter according to the adjusted statistics, which would make him a much better than league average hitter in all reality with the way he makes contact, doesn't strike out, and sprays the ball around. So I was happy to see all of that, that they didn't decide to tackle that problem by just not paying him because that would have, that would have been a way to go. And there would have been people out there who totally agreed with it and said, yeah, you know, you, you might like having Tapia on your roster, it, you, you know, but are, do you want him on your roster for $3 million? It's not a lot of money, but like I just, that's why I brought up the David Dahl thing. It's $3 million that could go to somebody, right? They just picked up Jose Iglesias, who's going to be a starter for them, for $5 million. So I really like that they went, no, 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 we, you know, we'll see. Maybe they do go forward with a trade, but even if they trade him, you know, that suggests, okay, they believe that he had value to them, value to them in a trade, value to them on the field, value to them as depth, whatever it is. I believe that is the correct decision, as you all well know, because I I believe that Tapia is going to be a player in this league, whether it's for the Rockies or not. And I think it should be, because I think the Coors Field is the place where you can best take advantage of his type of bat. And I always try to remind people of this, too. I'm starting to jump into the conversation I was going to end this on. Uh, Actually, I'll I'll leave that for the the spring train. I'll just do the fifth rotation spot at the end. So here's what I'll say about the bench. Uh, You know, the 28-man rosters and all this. I, I get it's tempting when you look at, like, a starting lineup like, okay, that's your starting lineup. And if it doesn't include a guy like Rymal Tapia, who has some value, right? To be like, okay, well then trade him. But someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to underperform. There are going to be moments in time where you need those other players. Depth is really, really important. And Tapia is not a traditional depth piece, but he's a good one. 
And a few of these guys are. And so I think that's going to be to the benefit of the Rockies to have these guys around uh, for those moments that have kind of hurt them in the past where one of their star players or just one of their regulars goes down and they have to turn to somebody who's, you know, struggling in AAA sometimes. And at least here now they'll have these guys who have proven ability at the big league level. So... Ultimately, I'm happy to see how the Rockies have handled the arbitration deadline and, and all of that. I think they'll get things worked out with Freeland. was glad to see that none of these other guys who you could have maybe justified just cutting for money. Again, with the addition of Chris Bryant, you really could have, or Daza, right, who's not making anything. But ultimately, you, you could have justified getting rid of any of those guys to save a little bit of money. And they didn't. And I think that's... That, uh, another showing, again, that they're looking about the competitive ability of the team and saying, if we're going to sneak up on some people, if we're going to surprise the league this year, we need this this solid quality depth. It's not world-beating depth, but it's absolutely depth that's better than, I, I don't want to pick on people, but certain guys that they've had to call up over the last couple of years, right? So that's what I'll say. Uh, that, that's it for arbitration. Few other things that became official, I believe, just yesterday as I'm recording this, are uh, the official rule changes that will be coming to Major League Baseball in 2022. Now, I'm not going to dive back into the ones we knew, you know, expanded postseason, universal DH, that stuff we already knew about, right? The, here, here are the new ones. I'll go through this first one kind of quickly. It's it's fun and interesting, but basically the Otani rule. And I, I think this is right. I'm glad that Major League Baseball did this, even though it is a rule that, as of right now, probably only applies to one player. It was not like I watched a ton of Angels games, but it, it is a bummer if this superstar player, essentially how it worked before, right, is if Otani was pitching and needed to come out of the game as a pitcher, but the Angels wanted to leave his bat in. They couldn't do that. And not only that, but if he was in at like pitcher and DH, which the Angels would do a lot, uh, and then they would take him out of the game because, you know, he's thrown 95 plus pitches or whatever. You got to protect his arm. But when they they take him out of the game and now you've got a relief pitcher in your DH spot, right? And so, again, yeah, th- this rule, at least for now, really only applies to one guy, especially now that we've got the universal DH there aren't going to be too many pitchers hitting but in a theoretical world where two-way players become more of a thing I've always hoped that they would and if not whatever it's just for Otani and it's good because we want more Otani in the game more more room and it doesn't really hurt anybody honestly so I like the Major League Baseball did this that they made it sure that you know if they want to keep that bat in there they can and if anyone else wants to play it that way they can do so too but Ultimately, more Shohei Otani in the game of baseball is a good thing for everybody. And uh, yeah, I thought that was kind of a funny one that they had to put that rule in. Uh, Here on these next two, they got it absolutely backwards and absolutely backwards from the way I kept hearing they were going to do it. So I'm a little perplexed and frustrated with this one because they're going to apparently go back to the nine inning double headers, which I don't hate. Like, I'm fine with that. Um... But that was one of the things that I actually thought really did help take some of the sting out of a long day of a doubleheader. And and we're going to have a few doubleheaders on the schedule this year because of the late start to the season. So I was a little bit surprised that they did that. In addition to as somebody who almost never complains about the length of games or the pace of play or 
any of those things. It was one of the very few rule changes that came out of the pandemic era that made me think, actually, this is fine. And it's fine for the game on the whole. Like, there's no reason to go back to the full nine-inning doubleheader. Like, you're not really missing out on that much legitimate... Like, you know, people, well, what about the stats? And it's like, it all balances out. There's really not that much less baseball, but it is quite a bit less time. And <laughs> so, whatever. Again, like I said, it, it's it's not super frustrating. It's just confusing, and I'm not quite sure why they decided to get rid of that since that was one of the things that I don't remember hearing anybody complain about. Again, people like me who even say things like, ah, with the pitch clock, and I don't know about this or that or the other when it comes to pace of play. But the seven-inning doubleheaders, I thought I was going to hate them. I really did because of all that stuff. And then we played a couple seasons with them. I was like, it's fine. It's uh, 100% fine. Uh, so I'm surprised they're going back on that. As opposed to the other rule that they're keeping, which is the California rule. Quick aside, some of you saw me tweet about this. Baseball, look, fans, call it whatever you want. I'm not going to police your behavior. Have some fun. Do what you want to do. But... Baseball writers and broadcasters and people who give information to the general public. Please, please stop calling it the ghost runner. It is not a ghost runner. It's a real runner. The ghost runner is something else entirely. For those of you that don't know where that term comes from, the ghost runner is for when you're a little kid. I guess you could do it at any age, but when I was growing up and playing baseball... But we only had five people out there because most people don't rock around with a group of friends that run 18 deep so that you can, <laughs> you know, play two sides of baseball, right? You'd usually have one guy pitching, one guy hitting, and a couple of guys out in the field. And so the idea was if you got a hit that kind of went into the gap, you could run to second base, be safe, and then you'd say, okay, now there's a ghost runner on second base. So if I hit another double, we all know that guy scores. But there was no actual runner. We would all have to pretend that the ghost runner was there and have that ghost runner advance in our minds because we didn't have enough guys to actually run the bases, right? That's where the term ghost runner comes from. It's literally from when you don't have a person out there on the bases and we have to literally imagine it. So when there's a real person on the bases, please, please, please don't call it a ghost runner. It hurts my brain and my heart and my soul a little bit. Uh, but the California rule in which a very real and alive human being goes out and runs the bases to start extra innings beginning at, at second base. I hate it. I, I really hate this rule. I think it impacts the outcomes of games, uh, you know, and, and I know there are some statistics out there that, again, suggest that it's all a wash, but watching them, it does not feel like the outcomes of extra inning games are anything more than a coin flip to me at this point. And I guess maybe that's why they balance out, because everyone's going to be right around 500 in extra innings, which I don't know. I, I think that that diminishes teams you know, who maybe run a little deeper in their bullpen or run a little deeper on their bench. And instead, you know, it, extra innings basically has become who gets a base hit first because that's all you need is one base hit. You've got three outs to get a base hit and the guy will score unless you hit a scorching liner right at the left fielder or something, right? Like it's 
with a runner already in scoring position, it fundamentally changes the way that you play baseball. It's more or less the same reason that I don't like... There are certain things about the college football over time that I like, but the main reason that I don't is because field position becomes not a thing, right? And that's one of the most important things in football. You start me at the 20-yard line, like, yeah, I've got a lot of plays in my playbook where I can score a touchdown, right? You start me with a guy on second base, I can get a couple of grounders to get him in, I can bunt him over, and I know a lot of people say, well, not not so many teams have bunted, as you might think. You can send a guy like Raimel Tapia to hit a ground ball to second base, and that's going to move the runner over. Remember that stat I had last year? Toppy had something like 18 at-bats all season with a runner at third base and less than one out, or less than two outs, excuse me, and he had 18 RBI in those situations. Like, you send a contact guy to the plate with a runner in scoring position, you don't have to do good baseball to score a run and win, and the other guys don't have to do bad baseball to not score a run. You know, it's just an inning or a couple of line drives. So building a rally... And the most important part of building a rally is getting that first guy on base. It changes the way the pitcher has to pitch. Now he's got to go out of the stretch. So you're starting the pitcher out of the stretch. Again, I could dive deeper and deeper into everything that I don't like about the California rule, why it fundamentally changes the way the game is played. And I would be favor, and I, I think it was actually my mom who gave me this idea on Twitter of saying that maybe after a couple of innings, started in the 12th or the 13th, that I'm fine with. That, that I'm perfectly okay with, you know, but especially for games where like there's a one run deficit in, let's say there's a one run deficit in the bottom of the ninth and your team is down to their final hitter and that guy hits a home run to tie up the game, right? And send it into extras. Cool. But all that really means is that the next half inning, the visitors begin with a guy at second base and an extraordinary opportunity to immediately take the lead and put all the pressure right back on you, the home team, who should have an advantage in this situation. And it's kind of taken away. So, yeah, for, for me, it just, I don't like the rule. I don't know why they got this backwards. They should have gotten rid of the California rule and kept the nine-inning doubleheader or at least said, hey, we'll do the California rule, but only if a game goes into the 12th. Now, give me at least a 10th and 11th innings where we're still playing regular, normal baseball, where you still have to try to earn your way all the way around the bases. And if the teams haven't gotten to it by that, okay, then I'm fine with it. And, and I certainly have come around on the idea that like 17 or 18 inning games just aren't nearly as fun as, as we maybe think they are, as silly as they can be. It's hard on the players. It's hard on... The, the broadcasters and people working at the stadiums and there's 162 of these things and I get it. I really do. But you, you can't, you got to be careful about changing the competitive balance of the game. And it's one thing to mess with people's statistics like in a seven inning doubleheader and go, oh, well, such and such player maybe would have had a 30 home run season, but he had an inordinate number of doubleheaders this year. And so he missed out on what? 16, 20 innings worth of potential baseball. But this is, this is you've got the team that didn't necessarily play the better game winning the game because at the very end, they happen to get the hit at the right time, which I know can sometimes feel like that's just baseball in general, but yeah. All right. And then the final rule change that I had alluded to, and I was very curious about this, and I didn't think they'd go all the way out to 28. So uh, I want to learn more about the process behind this, what went into it. 
uh, whether or not this is expected to be the norm moving forward because I've thought for a long time that it made sense to do both of the things that they've, they've kind of done over the last couple of years, which is expand the regular rosters, but really pare down how many guys you can call up in September. Mark Knutson and I have talked about this as well. The idea that actually what you should have is the bigger roster for the first month of the season, not for the last month of the season uh, when, you know, pennant races are being decided and stuff. But here at the beginning, when you can kind of give some of these guys, you know, get their feet wet, get them some experience and all of that. I, I think that's an interesting idea as well. But ultimately, I really, really like the 28-man roster a lot. Again, this is something that I think is going to help for parity in baseball because I think the teams that tend to sneak up on the powerhouses are the ones that find those players at the bottom of the roster who are able to surprise or develop or improve or whatever. And it's really difficult to do that if you're stuck in AAA or, you know, there's just no spot for you. And so I think that this version of the Rockies in particular has some really interesting things that they can do with that. A guy like Colton Welker, uh, you know, who maybe, again, would have been stuck in AAA. Now, you still got to worry about every day at bats. There are still those kinds of things. And so I could see all of the Rockies sort of top prospects beginning in AAA, right? And then filling up their roster, their their bench with these guys who have experience at the big leagues and haven't proven to be everyday players yet, but who bring a very clear skill set to the table. A guy like Jonathan Daza, where you go, man, you can't have his bat getting four or five at-bats every single day. But his defense and his base running are so good that if you get him in at the ends of games or in certain specific situations, you, you've got yourself a quality asset there. I mentioned earlier guys like Garrett Hampson and Ryan Altapia. Uh, you know, if Sam Hilliard is, is out there starting, now you've got these just kind of uber athletes on your bench who you can employ whenever you need them. You've got a lot of speed and athleticism, quality defense there, a good lefty contact bat, a good righty contact bat. If Hampson needs to go in and face a lefty, he's got very good numbers against lefties. So uh, yeah, I'll have to dive a little bit deeper into what I think the Rockies might do with these extra couple of spots on their roster, but I think it's going to be very, very good for them. Most prominently, probably in the bullpen because it's just the, fact of the matter with Colorado Rockies that the more relievers you've got around, the more options you have, the better. You don't want to have to be tied to any one guy who might not be pitching well at this moment. You've got to be able to look to somebody to figure it out. And you know, as bad as the Rockies bullpen was last year, by about halfway through the season, there were a few guys who started to emerge who, you know, had mostly been pitching and blowouts one way or the other or the fifth sixth inning and then all of a sudden a guy like Tyler Kinley and Lucas Gilbreth and and Jordan Sheffield these guys start pitching really really well and you look up at the end of the season those guys are pitching seventh and eighth inning right so having more of those options in the bullpen I think is going to be really really good there have been some conversation about limiting the number of pitchers you can carry and Major League Baseball didn't do that I don't think the Rockies will abuse it and carry like 16 pitchers, right, and, and really load up the bullpen. Uh, I would be tempted to, honestly, if, if for at least the first month of the season. Because, again, I think you're trying to find, you just don't know. Bullpen, re- relievers are a crapshoot. And until you're like a month and a half, two months into the season, it's hard to tell which one of these guys is going to be able to go. And so the three batter minimum makes it a little tougher. But still, if you, you want to be in that situation where you go, Shoot, you know, if Justin Lawrence has a hot spring training, you want to be able to carry that guy because he throws 103 miles an hour with a wicked slider. And so you go, 
yeah, let's put him on the roster. You put him out there two or three times in the sixth inning, and he's walking dudes or he gets blown up. You do whatever. You go, oh, well, okay, that didn't work out. But luckily, we've got all these other guys around, so we're not tied to him. We don't have to keep throwing him out there. Maybe send him back to AAA for a little more seasoning. Start handing the ball to somebody else. So for me, I just like options in the bullpen, especially in a bullpen where you have no idea. Basically, from closer to eighth or, I guess, ninth or tenth guy, who's got what, quite frankly, right? Going into this season, Alex Colome could be their closer all year long. I'm going to have a much longer conversation on the bullpen coming up, so I won't do too much of this right now. But he could be their closer all year long, or he could be off the roster two months into the season. And you could say that about like six guys on this roster. Daniel Bard could get it back and be a great closer for this team. Or he could have to retire before the season's over. Carlos Estevez. Maybe he finally puts it all together and really does become that guy who's been dominant at times in his career, but never been able to make it maintained. Maybe he's the guy. Maybe Tyler Kinley. Maybe Jordan Sheffield. Maybe Robert Stevenson. Maybe Lucas Gilbreth. But every single one of them is a giant maybe so for me, with the expanded roster, I'd be doing a lot of bullpen experimentation. And the final thing that I wanted to talk about on today's episode, I want to do a little bit of spring training battles. Uh, again, I need to look deeper at the bench and see if that's even going to be a battle. Or I, I think I pretty much know who they're going to carry now, just based on the numbers and who's going to need at-bats in AAA. But slight update here on the fifth rotation spot because Ryan Rollison just uh, about an hour before I started recording this was optioned down to minor league camp I think it's a real bummer for Rollison that the, you know this lockout the guy just can't catch a break it's injury and then pandemic and then injury again and then lockout that basically made it so that spring training just wasn't going to be long enough for him to earn a spot and the same is almost certainly going to be true for Peter Lambert, uh, who made a couple of spot starts at the very end of last year, just threw a couple of innings. He's still, you know, technically on the recovery from Tommy John. And so while I was very hopeful that those guys could maybe make the roster as kind of a best case scenario, right? That's your highest ceiling for the rotation was to have either Rollison or Lambert step in and make that fifth rotation spot, even something you can kind of get excited about. And it's looking instead like it's almost certainly going to be one of either Chad Kuhn or Ty Block, with Kuhn, I think, having uh, the, the advantage here. And it's interesting because Ty Block, uh, they've been throwing out there a lot. They've been getting a good look at him. He's a Colorado native, right? Came out of, out of Denver. He's a lefty. He'd been with the Giants for a couple of years, and he'd put up basically a 90 ERA plus with the Giants. Uh, he, In other words, he was below league average. But as a lefty, and he was eating up a bunch of innings, like he threw 163 innings in 2017, 118 innings in 2018, both to an 89 ERA plus. So not good, but certainly better. Again, as, as I've talked about when the team added Chad Cool, that's a lot better than the 74 and lower that they were getting out of Chichi Gonzalez and other people who had to make spots uh, st- starts for the, the Rockies last year. And so these two veteran guys in Block and Cool are floor guys, right? Now, since 2018, Block has struggled and been hurt. He only threw 27 innings in 2019 and then had to get Tommy John surgery, right? So he's been out for 
a while. And and he was bad in 2019 for whatever for whatever it's worth. But again, over 27 innings, you know, he had a 12 ERA, a 39 ERA plus, whatever. But that was several years ago, and, and now he's got the Tommy John. And so what do you do with that? You know, there are all those stories of guys who are have been better after Tommy John. You know, we, we, we want to get a good look at Ty Block this spring for sure. I'm not expecting either one of these guys to show up and suddenly be really awesome and be like, oh, wow, look at the way, you know, they're they're handling the situation. Always curious to see how new people do with the Coors Field element. But ultimately here, if they can pitch to what their numbers were when they were healthy, either Ty Block or Chad Cool, the Rockies should have a better fifth rotation starter than they did a year ago when they won 74 games almost entirely on the strength of their starting pitching. I also think it's interesting to see whether or not one of these guys could end up in the bullpen as a long reliever as well, because also outside of Lucas Gilbreth and Ben Bowden, the, the Rockies don't really have any lefties in the pen. And so Ty Block, you know, could be an interesting answer there. It, it's going to be, I, I think, a, a little bit of a battle between the two of them. And again, I think Chad Cool will win it. And... And I think Ty Block, if he pitches well, can end up in the bullpen for precisely that reason. Plus, they're going to need a long relief guy anyway. And so I think that could work out pretty well for them. Uh, I was really hoping that Lambert and Rollison were going to have an opportunity to win the spot. I just don't think spring training was long enough. Uh, they, they, they really got beat up by this truncated spring training. That said, you know, Lambert and Rollison represent much, much better pitching depth than, again, the Rockies had last year or the year before. So that, you know, if Chad Cool is there in the fifth spot, and and he's worse, he's not handling the Coors Field thing well. He can't get to his career 95 ERA plus. Instead, he's pitching at a at an 85 or an 80, right? Which would still be better than what they were getting last year, but you're, you're probably frustrated at that. And then you that's when you hope and you look to AAA and hope that with a couple of starts under their belts that Rollison and Lambert are looking healthy, they're looking good, uh, you know, they're they're getting their confidence in a place where there's not all this pressure. And, and that's one of the things I, I worry about with both of them, not just as young players, but as young players coming off of injuries and seasons full of drama, you know, where it's just been very difficult for them to get back onto the baseball field. And so to combine all of the, those emotions and all of that energy with also, okay, now you've got to kind of prove it and make it at the big league level here. I get the philosophy behind starting their seasons in AAA, having them there ready to go in case you need them. And you are going to need them. Again, it's like the thing I was saying about the outfield. I know a lot of people want to be like, okay, you've got your four outfielders and that's all you need. But no, you're going to need five, maybe six outfielders to contribute this year. And you're going to need six, maybe seven. You know, in, in an ideal world, you only need six or seven starting pitching. If, you, if you're reaching for nine guys, you're having a bad year in terms of health and luck and, and probably just in general if you're, if you're reaching that deep, right? But that these guys are here representing a much more solid floor, but also that they have potential in guys like Rollison and Lambert is really interesting. So... You know, that battle for the fifth rotation spot may be over. No, I won't say it's over. Ty Block still has a chance to potentially win it. But I would say Cool would have to be pretty rough and Block would have to be pretty good in order for that to happen. Because I think the writing is just on the wall here. I think it's clear. I think that's clearly what they brought Chad Cool in to do. 
you know, is, is to be a fifth rotation starter who won't have them tearing their hair out. And for the money, you know, for, for the resources that they had to spend to get them, I think that's perfectly reasonable expectation uh, down there at the bottom of the rotation. I, w- I was just hoping that was one place where maybe they could throw everyone a bone and be like, not only, you know, are we coming in with some new exciting position players, one new guy that maybe you can get excited about in the bullpen. He hadn't gotten out there just yet. I don't think, I don't think Colome has pitched yet, but you know, what do you think of maybe a young up and comer as that final guy in the rotation? It's certainly more exciting than ah, this veteran who we got from Pittsburgh, who's been fine or this guy we took, uh, he had been with San Francisco, Ty Block, I, I think, and then Baltimore cut him. But you go, those aren't exciting, right? Those just obviously are, are nowhere near as exciting. But I do think it's probably the right and best move, especially if cool can be solid for the first month or two. Give those guys that extra opportunity to grow and be ready when they're going to get the call. They will get the call at some point this season. We will see both Peter Lambert and Ryan Rollison pitch in the big leagues. We just don't know exactly the circumstances of that yet. But look, it remains true. I was upset as anybody over the loss of John Gray. Uh, I wrote about it. I podcasted about it. I was, I don't think they handled that situation well from top to bottom. That said, I still do think they've got the best rotation they've ever had. I do think that it has the opportunity to be better than it was a year ago. Uh, comfortably with improvements from guys like Austin Gomber. I think Marquez is going to have a better year. I think Freeland is going to be right there in the mix. I think Sensatella has a chance for a breakout again. And then I just don't see a way in which the combination of, and and remember, so you lost John Gray. So basically the, the formula is this, right? The loss of John Gray. So it was John Gray, but also plus Chichi Gonzalez, Antonio Santos, Ashton Godot, guys who were getting starts last year who were really bad. So you've got the combined production of John Gray and Chichi Gonzalez and all of those guys versus the production of Chad Cool, Ty Block, Peter Lambert, and Ryan Rollison. And that is the combination that I think, yeah, with, with Gray having been just over league average last year and being only one guy who could only do so much to counterbalance the steep drop-off that came after him, You've got four players now who I think can accumulate a better average for what amount to your fifth and sixth rotation spots, if you want to think of it that way. So thank you all for listening into this episode. Let me know if you've got any other questions about these rule changes or anything else that's going on with your Colorado Rockies. Like I said, the next deep dive is going to be on the bullpen, so stick around for that. Keep watching or listening to all these spring training games. Hit me up with conversations on Twitter, at Drew Creaseman. You can slide into my DMs if you want to learn about how you can get involved in the Discord channel where we're talking Rockies baseball 24-7. You know I appreciate each and every one of you for being absolutely awesome out there. I will continue to be absolutely Drew Creaseman in here. And until next time, I will see you at the ballpark.